Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey everybody, I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Koch. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Dr. Terry Shoemaker is a sociologist at Arizona State University, and some of his recent work focuses on people who were raised in the Bible Belt, but have left conservative Christianity for one reason or another. Through this work, Terry has identified a certain strain of Christianity, prominent in the South and some of the Midwest, and not so much on the coasts, that he calls culture war Christianity. I'll let him explain more what that means. But what he ends up getting to in his research is the particular type of trauma experienced by those who leave the church or move to different kinds of churches in what is essentially a conservative Christian monoculture. I heard Terry speak at the American Academy of Religion conference back in November, and I've been eager to chat with him about this since then. So let's get into it. Dr. Terry Shoemaker, so glad to have you here. We met at the American Academy of Religion conference last November, 
and uh, I saw you on a panel and we chatted afterwards and I was just not only impressed but really intrigued by the work you're doing. And so for me, this is a conversation I've been waiting for for four months. Very happy to be having it. The first thing I want to do is start really wide, 30,000 foot view here. You're a social scientist and under the category of social scientist, you are more specifically a religion researcher. So for those of us who don't really know what either of those terms mean, can you define them? Yeah, so I'll start first with uh, the religion researcher and and kind of work back uh, very quickly. So specifically, my PhD is in religious studies, which is an academic field uh, that was developed, really kind of the emergence of enlightenment of thinking that religion can be explored in a within observatory scientific kind of lens, not just the theological. The field of religious studies is really interested in understanding uh, religion as a social phenomenon. With this, this is, does, doesn't necessarily mean that social scientists, religious studies researchers are anti-religion or anything else, but really just trying to understand what's going on. How does religion inform and influence, impact, create people's sensibilities, etc.? Yeah, I had a friend mention that like theology is sort of what you do from the inside of religion, and then religion research is what you might do from the outside uh, in terms of just different ways of thinking of how to talk about it or categorize it or study it. Yeah, I, I, th- I think that's probably probably valid thinking about it. I mean, one of the things we always say is that, you know, theology is obviously more concerned with the study of the divine, a deity, a god, and obviously a scientific empirical uh, method wants to really be able to observe everything that it can, uh, and therefore a lot of times that part of it is divorced right. um, from the, the scientific method. But that being said, I asked uh, Jim Wellman, a, a religion researcher here in Seattle, like, what percentage of these people are religious? And he was like, oh, like at least 75% of them are practicing in, in some way. That was his guess. He's like, we don't talk about that because we're trying to do science here. We're trying to do empirical study of religious groups. But he's like, most people are. So it doesn't – just because you're studying it from the outside does not mean – either that you are religious or that you are not religious. It's it's sort of like being a cell biologist or something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, and I think that's exactly right. Well, I don't know about that 75%. I have no idea about that statistic. But I, I've actually – so um, the department I was in before when I got my master's degree, uh, very few of the people were actually religious. And now that I'm at Arizona State, I'm actually finding that many of the people are religious uh, within within our department. And so it does vary. And I think you're right. The, the assumption is, is that people can come to this topic uh, with an unbiased, uh, as neutral as possible, lens and trying to understand the particular phenomenon. Um, you know, and, and with that being said, sometimes someone is, say, a practicing Buddhist and they're studying Buddhism, but sometimes they're practicing Buddhist and they're studying, say, Judaism totally. uh, and he- yeah. Hebrew scripture. So uh, there's a lot of variety uh, within the field. Yeah. I mean, it's like if you're an archaeologist, for instance, you might be a Christian or a Jew, but you don't want that impacting like where you choose to dig and how you would describe an artifact that you discovered. Like, the archaeology itself is science. You just do it well. And if you bring your ideology in, then you're actually being a worse scientist. In in your wearing your hat as a scientist, you can then go to church on Sunday, and that's a different hat. Yeah, uh, that's exactly right. And what many might say is that in that example that you use is that if, if one was letting their religiosity kind of 
uh, color their research, then uh, then the reality is you, you're probably tainting your data. Totally. Uh, and you're going to, you know, you're opening yourself up to heavy criticism uh, in so many ways. And so the, the best thing, especially in the modern world uh, in which we live, religion is assumed to be privatized, especially when it comes to any type of scientific research. So what does your work specifically entail? Who are these populations that you're working with? What are the questions you're asking? My field of studies is is very broad and just religion kind of in America. Uh, so I've done work with religion and disabilities. I've done work with religion and pop culture, nationalism, patriotism, kind of civic religion. And uh, and then uh, I have an edited volume on uh, called The Prophetic Dimension of Sport. So thinking about how sport provides a space for us as a population wrestle with some of the social injustices in, in our society and thinking about why sports is that space in our society today. More specific to this conversation, I've done uh, research, uh, particularly uh, in the Bible Belt, and, it, and it's probably twofold. Um, a master's thesis examined how white megachurches in South Central Kentucky cultivate nationalism and patriotism within the church service, so internally. And then to kind of follow up on this, uh, really, the guiding question was, well, is, is anybody pushing back on that? Again, kind of on an internal kind of dialogue, which led me to uh, some of the respondents and consultants of my project regarding the culture war and how one kind of works in that and out of it and navigates that. Yeah, so we're going to spend a lot of time talking about your uh, research around that culture war stuff. Before we get there, I'm curious, just autobiographically, what drew you to this kind of work and this kind of study? Like, why why religion research and not theology, or or why not simply regular sociology? Yeah, so I am a product of two teenage parents in 1976 who uh, started a family with no health insurance uh, in Glasgow, Kentucky, and they came from two drastically different worlds. One grew up in a household uh, whose dad came back from the Korean War and said there's no way there's, uh, for him, the, the tragedies and tra trauma he had seen in, uh, in the Korean War, he came back and said there's no way there's any type of divine. There just can't be. Mm. And then on the opposite end, my mom grew up in a very ultra-fundamentalist church. I don't know if they ever sat down and discussed this, but I think they kind of tacitly came to a conclusion that maybe the best thing they could do is uh, I have a twin brother for my twin brother and I is to just let us be free and make our own decisions on, on these things. Um, but growing up in South Central Kentucky, if you're not part of a church community, there's a lot of privileges you don't have. And I've always found it absolutely fascinating. Uh, I kind of felt like an outsider growing up in that region. And I think that was probably the initial personal questions that then led to some academic questions uh, but particularly in that region of the Bible Belt where it's uh, religion can be quite, and I don't mean this negatively, but quite suffocating uh, in, in the area. I mean, it, it just permeates every aspect of life. And, uh, and so that just led me to all kinds of questions, trying to understand kind of the context of milieu in which I was brought up in. Yeah, hopefully without getting too astray, that's something that I've noticed in my involvement in uh, the Bad Christian podcast and, and their network and couple of their conferences, both of which have been held in the South, and a lot of their listeners are in the South or the Midwest. And it's been interesting to talk to them. I, I know you're probably not super familiar, but they're basically sort of ex-evangelicals 
who are trying to figure this stuff out. They talk a lot about like megachurch culture and and like the the sales pitch of pastors and all this stuff. And you know, some of that stuff resonates with me, but I mostly tune in for like the theology episodes that they have. And I think that's because I grew up in California and now I live in Seattle. And so I'm I don't know I don't recognize in my own story that that suffocation or we might call it like religious humidity, right? It's yeah, like yeah, yeah. in the air. That's not really true in the Bay Area. It's not true. It's certainly not true in Seattle. In Seattle, you have to explain to somebody why you're a Christian, uh, lest they think you're a, a nut job. And so that's been interesting, just to 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 realize, oh, this is really resonating on a different level with people based on the context in which they've grown up or they've lived. A, a question I have for you is, given that context and given that your mom was at a fundamentalist church, her ability to let you and your brother choose for yourself, that alone feels like kind of like a revolutionary act. Is that how you would consider it? I would definitely say it's uh, it's an act of courage Yeah. Uh, for that particular context. Uh, the, the good thing, my dad probably, um, just, just because of his personality and, uh, and kind of some separation of some family relationships there, I think uh, it was permissible for them. But it, but it is, and this goes back to kind of the social scientific understanding of, of what you're trying to, of what you're saying about kind of West Coast versus Bible Belt Christianity and how one lives that. Re- religion uh, really is contextual in the sense that in, in the Bible Belt, it holds power on individuals and collectives and even politics, whereas the West Coast, it's, it tends to be, at least my understanding, much more subversive. And, and how it operates. One of the things we did was to actually, you know, buy like seven acres out in the middle of the rural expanse. And that does allow one some freedom. Totally. And that's also the kind of move that is uh, definitely um, welcomed in that community, right? Because there, there's sort of these competing values. One value is God and country and church. But another value is like, leave me alone. Don't tread on me. And that yeah. you could maybe use one to leverage against another uh, in terms of explaining yourself to your to your social group. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right. So I want to focus on the work that you've done in the Bible Belt. This is the work you talked about at AAR when we met and that I was so fascinated by. Not not that your other work is probably not also very interesting, but like, give us an example of one of these studies, like nuts and bolts. So who are you interviewing? Where? What are you talking about? What are you looking for? Just, just put us in the room. My research is particularly uh, what one might call, say, uh, qualitative sociology or ethnography. Uh, and so ethnography is the, the study of trying to understand a particular culture or subculture. And for me, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. And, and the, the, there's, a, there's a whole process in, in creating a study, the boring parts of it, right? The application and the sure. institutional review board, et cetera. And, and I've really struggled at even trying to figure out how to do this. People initially, it was people who had grown up in some sort of conservative. Bernadette Barton calls it compulsory Christianity. Uh, was she, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, she's at Moorhead State in Kentucky uh, and has a tremendous book. And I'll, I'll give her props called "Pray the Gay Away: The Extraordinary Lives of Homosexuals in the Bible Belt." Phenomenal book. I highly recommend it. It was yeah. very formative in my understanding of, of kind of an infrastructure of, of religionized politics and politicized religion uh, in, in the Bible Belt. I'm still I'm still just <clears throat> spinning over compulsory Christianity in my head over and over mm-hmm. again. That is yeah. a rich – that's a dense phrase. There's a lot there. 
in my study, I ended up just using the phrase culture war Christianity to describe what I was doing. But I think compulsory Christianity works at many levels uh, in that region. I was trying to find people who had grown up in this uh, kind of stronghold, compulsory culture war Christianity and, um, and who had made the decision to leave it. And, and I was really fascinated by people who had left it but wanted to stay in a non-liturgical Protestantism. I think many people assume you grow up in, say, what we'd call fundamentalist or some sort of ultra strict, um, again, kind of a, a strong welding type of Christianity that people would leave it, that we could rationally just make a decision and say, that's BS, that makes no intellectual sense to me, and emotionally it's damaging, therefore I will exit this thing and never return. But that that wasn't the case for many people that uh, started talking with, conducting the qualitative interviews, setting down. Uh, so the qualitative interviews are great. Uh, it's, it's much like recording a podcast in some ways, uh, yeah. but no one ever, no one ever gets to hear it. Uh, and then, uh, but until, then we, until my <laughs> dissertation, Terry, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to combine them. Yeah, do it. I think it's a great idea. Uh, but then the participant observation. So like, you know, I, I went to people's homes and just sat and chatted with them and had meals. And then there were these informal gatherings of people gathering together in living rooms over uh, some some good uh, homebrew or a, a bottle of wine yeah. and talking about these things to, you know, going to these uh, to kind of a progressive Christian church communities and just, you know, just trying to soak it all in and from all that data kind of come up with themes and patterns and things that I could theorize about uh, and, and talk about in a, in a way that, that not only relates to this particular case study, but then also tells us something broadly about religion in America. A couple things uh, jumped out to me while you're talking about that. Number one, I can see the autobiographical connection there, that you were kind of raised in this same milieu, but you were given just enough space that you could sort of go, oh, interesting. I could go left or I could go right here. I could choose this or choose that. I'm sure you had friends that were much more heavily involved or friends who had left. And so what happens if you leave? That's cool. That's cool to kind of see how that develops and see the consequences of your parents' uh, decisions on your own life. And the other thing I want to just clear up is you keep saying qualitative interviews, which that's different than quantitative research, right? So that would be numbers or measurable things. Qualitative means you're really sitting in the room and trying to trying to hear from people and, and you're listening. Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. So quantitative typically is trying to quantify, uh, for in this instance, how many people are leaving this and remaining right. inside of it. That's that's one of the things that my research can't quite answer. To be quite honest, you know, an increasing trend, a decreasing trend. I don't know how many people are moving from point A to point B. Well, that's uh, good but, to be aware of. Yeah, you'd have to have like a representative survey or something to get that kind of uh, – to make that kind of point. But you're just like, these are the people I'm looking for, and if I can find them, I want to know what this population, however big or small it is, it, like I'd like to draw some general conclusions of, of what's going on. So I I want to also clear up your, – you're saying culture war. That term gets thrown around a lot. You're uh, a scientist, and so you're using terms – very carefully. So when you say culture war, what do you mean? This kind of moral struggle to define America. I think in many ways it's real, and I think in many ways it's imagined. I think it's both and. America is at this this crux. So the one the one side would say could go in this very secular, 
read atheistic, non-religious, and sometimes that's interpreted as anti-religious, although I don't think that's necessarily the case. And then, you know, then the other side wants to assume that the ultimate goal of, say, the other side is a Christian theocracy, right. uh, kind of a handmaiden's tale, gloomy version. Uh, and both sides paint very, very distraught pictures of where we'd end up if should either side ever get the power. Right. Yeah. On the on the right, it's like, are we going to head to a completely secular European, you know, sex society? And then on the left, it's like, are we going to just continue to destroy the planet and spurn the poor? You know, like so So the, the stakes are really high, which is why culture war is an appropriate term, right? Yeah, uh, you know, and they, the hyperboles are everywhere it, to the point that sometimes they're actually comical, I think. Yeah. Uh, although people who are really grabbing hold of this and, and, and wanting to to really fight in this struggle, see this as very, very serious. And so and in the South, I think it, this idea of the culture war, it has really, really deep roots in it already to all the way back to Scope's monkey trial. Yeah, and 100 years ago, yeah. Even the Civil War creates the self-proclaimed Southern marginalization and victimhood kind of mentality. There, there's so much in the Southern ethos. Jerry Falwell, whether you agree with him or not, is absolutely brilliant at creating a uniform narrative that Southerners can totally just shake their head out and say, yes, we've been waiting for someone to articulate this. And so I think for the, the Southerner, they in, in many ways, they just say, yes, we've been saying this for like 100 years now. Finally, people are starting to listen. We're going to focus on the culture war from the perspective of the right. Uh, but it's it's cool that you bring up the fact that it it's both like there's there's a left word culture war. So with a culture war, there are weapons and you've developed this term of weaponization. Can you explain that? Yeah. So to, to weaponize religion, I think more and more people are starting to talk about that, uh, that that religion is obviously politicized in particular ways that can kind of create particular traumas for people in the end. But, but but the objective is to use that religion in such a way to accomplish kind of political means. The tradition itself, the symbols, the rituals, et cetera, become weaponized for a political means. And so in the culture war, you know, that means that the religiosity itself becomes a particular language, a, sim a symbolic mechanism by which one can uh, approach the, the culture wars, create uh, kind of an energy around it, build one's own uh, motivations for it. And, it, and it, the religion becomes central in all of this, how one talks about it, how one understands it. Uh, I, I think where mine is a little bit is is different in, in trying to build upon the foundation that's already laid with a lot of this work is is I'm saying that yes the religion is is weaponized but the but humans are actually weaponized as instruments within the culture war as right. well right and and this isn't for everybody right this isn't me just making this broad painted thing that everybody who does this is doing exactly i'm not yeah, saying it's that. not like if you were raised christian you are a weapon it's not right. as broad no. as that no 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 it's, it's not but for people who take this culture war uh seriously one of one way to weaponize say your children is to withdraw them from public school and send them to a private school hmm. a, a private christian school right because the intention is less about the specifics of the education and more about by doing this, 
my son, daughter is playing a part in this anti-secularist agenda that we are adopting. Yeah, and there's and there's biblical language, right? Like that we are in a war with powers and principalities and and if you think that that's true, then it might make perfect sense to use whatever influence you have, which includes influence you have over your children or if you're a pastor, influence you have over your youth group or something like that in that war against even if you think that the war is not against people, even if it's just against Satan or like encroaching secularism is probably more accurate. You can see the logic in wanting human weapons. You would think that you were doing them a favor probably and not yeah. harming them by doing it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, so I'll give you one example of uh, someone I interviewed, a young lady. She's probably mid to late 20s at this point. Uh, grew up with, I don't know, I think four or five siblings. They were all homeschooled and they woke up 5 a.m. in the morning. Very devout family as far as getting the homeschool curriculum completed every single day. Very disciplined. Uh, their objective was to get the homeschool curriculum for that day done by noon so that they could, after lunch, all uh, participate. Their dad actually has a Ph.D. in physics and wrote a, a creationist science uh, textbook. Oh, man. That was largely disseminated to homeschoolers uh, in the South, but across the country. Their afternoon objectives were to uh, literally packaging that up, mailing that out. Uh, and they were when, you know, when they kind of asked, like, I mean, they're, they're kids, right? Why are we doing this? The response was always something to the effect of, you know, well, we're in a battle against secularism and this is how we take part in it. Now, from a parent's from that parent's perspective, the, the way that they would sincerely articulate why they're doing that, they are training their children in the ways of the Lord and the paths that they should take. Uh, they're providing them an education. They're protecting them. For them, they would say, "This is the best thing we could do for our children at this particular moment." Wow! Right? I mean, it's it's it, and and the person I interviewed actually admitted that, like, my parents were so sincere in doing this. Uh, with no recognition that they were literally kind of conditioning their child uh, sweatshop labor in yeah. this movement. You know, I mean, it's uh, it was it, it, that that particular story kind of blew me away. Wow, that is that's a story. Although I'll admit, I was sitting here going, I don't have any kids yet, but like, you know, if the podcast leads to some books and or maybe some curriculum, you know, like I could see. The motivation of involving my kids in something that I'm doing, and I obviously believe that what I'm doing is helpful, right? And so did this dad. And if he thought, well, how do I know I'm doing good work? He could be like, well, I do have a PhD in physics. Like I could probably trust myself here. So it's really interesting. Like uh, it's hard to know where the right safeguards should be put in place to avoid that, where, where your intentions might be completely pure uh, towards your kids and they still got a good education, right? So it's not like, well, if you think, if you are okay with the uh, curriculum that they used, I mean, they got their work done. They they were able to pass, you know, do well in the SATs, et cetera, et cetera. So they, they weren't depriving them. You know, you do hear stories of, maybe you have some, do you have any stories of like kids who really didn't get schooling because the emphasis on the religious education was so strong. There's another story of a brother and sister who were, were in public school all the way to eighth grade, and they read some, uh, I forget which novel they read, uh, 
but it had the word damn in it. And because of it, their parents withdrew them from public school and put them in, in Christian school. And this and this all takes part right when their parents are just now they've relocated. They're they're joining a white mega church. So these people are slowly kind of being assimilated into into this. Um, the 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 young lady that that I referenced that was homeschooled, although in many ways she she uh, explained that she did receive a, a pretty good uh, education. In other ways, she didn't. Um, so she was just blown away when she took, say, biology in college. Right, of course. Uh, and she's actually went back and asked, you know, like asked her particular dad, like, well, how come you couldn't give me the other side too? Right? How come you couldn't just explain evolutionary biology to me, uh, the development of humans and Homo sapiens, um, and, and the long Earth creation story? What you know? Yeah, I, right. Old Earth creationism. Say. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, and um, and he was, you know, very clear in the sense that, uh, uh, you know, to me that has no validity whatsoever as a scientific hypothesis. She did feel like she got the short end of education in, in many, many ways. Certainly in the sciences, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, that's so interesting. Let's get a little bit more of a overview of what you've found. What ages are we talking about here when the weaponization occurs like when when is the start for the children at the time of the study they were most of them were in their 30s there were people some in their early 40s there were some in their late 20s for most of them though it starts exceptionally young uh, the objective of the study wasn't to kind of pinpoint sure uh, but but it starts really really early the expectations that many of them had say the born again conversion experience by the time they were seven or eight years old. Um, and, and, and all of them really, really kind of relayed the idea that th there was an intense expectation that they would have that very early. Uh, a lot of pressure was put on, a lot, a lot of anxiety about hell and the separation of family, it, which is sociologically fascinating to yeah. me that, that you, would, you would build a world, and, and I'm, I'm moving a little bit off your question, but, I, but I think it yeah, but I think it's important that you, that someone would build a world that uh, has this very small kind of enclave of a social network, right? And that is you, typically church and homeschool family, or it's church, private school family. These very young children are being told over and over that there is an agenda and ideology, uh, and then sometimes very particular people subgroups, homosexuals, uh, minorities, immigrants. Uh, they are kind of out to get us, right? And so you you have that part of the narrative, and at the same time you have this theological thing that says you either have this born again experience or you will go to hell. And the big repercussion of hell is you will be separated from that social network. Yeah. Which is which as a child, like I can't even fathom what that. Of course, you would have that experience. You would do what – in my mind, you would do whatever it would take to guarantee yeah. you're going to be with that family. That's so interesting. As an adult, I think, well, family schmamly, I don't want to go to fucking hell. <laughs> but if I'm a kid and I can't really make sense of hell, I'm, oh, mom and dad aren't around? Like sister and brother are gone forever? That would be far more terrifying than anything I could think of that I would describe as hell, right? Yeah. No, no, no. I think that's exactly right. And, and it was interesting because – None of the people that I spoke with kind of articulated this is what was happening. But, man, I heard it over and over and over again, this idea of, of particular separation 
And we grew up in this very small thing where everybody was just like us type thing. And I was told over and over that, you know, if I died in the middle of the night, that I was going to be separated from all those people for eternity uh, and the and the anxiety it created for people that that cosmic referee God idea really, really created a, a lot of trauma uh, for people in their youth that they had to deal with much later in life. Yeah, I mean, we kind of have to bring up this term, even though I'm a little reticent to do it because I don't want to overstate, but child abuse? I mean, isn't there a little bit of that going on in some of these cases? This is where, as a social scientist, I get to kind of set back. <laughs> it's, I yeah, mean, very you know convenient, Terry, very I, convenient. No, no it, it is, but, but at the same time, like, it, it really is interesting to me how sincere – even the people I talk with admit that their parents were so sincere in what they were trying to do. And I think that's the hard part of this, yeah, right? Which is different than most child abuse situations where there's some anger yes. being, you know, whatever. These are really yeah. unhealthy people who are lashing out and they can't. Right. You know, this is more like, no, really on purpose they wanted us to do all this stuff. with Like they planned it out sober-mindedly and, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. So it yeah. – but isn't that something that uh, psychologists talk about is that trauma and abuse are more in the effect than in the intention? You're probably exactly right on that. And and, and many of the people that that I interviewed would probably agree with you that that that, that it was if it wasn't abusive, it was traumatic. Yeah. I'm not really uh, and, sure what the line is between those yeah, things. And yeah, and that's what and that's where I was going to get to. Like I I'm not sure Again, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. And so I don't know. My job wasn't to counsel these people sure, uh, in, in any way, uh, although many of them had, you know, were, were seeking counseling uh, to, to talk, yeah. talk through this. Yeah. Another thing that came up is uh, this is a question that actually a lot of listeners have asked when I've fielded questions. And it's something I think about a lot. And it strikes me that we're maybe at a position to maybe look at it here with your work. And again, I know you're not a you're not a social psychologist, but there is a sense in which sometimes we tend to think, okay, we learn about cults and we see programs or read books or hear podcasts about these cults. And sometimes we start to recognize some of what we see in the cult, shades of it in our church experience or maybe a friend's church experience or whatever. And we're now talking about sort of the most devoted, the more extreme households and networks within the larger Southern Christian megaculture here. Is this a time where we could start to tease out the similarities or the, the continuum upon which cults and super fundamentalist sects of more mainstream religion, you know, how do we, how do you see that web? Yeah. I used, I used to have a friend and this was before I did the research. He, he used to simply say, if you want to know if you're in a cult or not, just try to leave and see what happens. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, if we take that as some sort of easy general standard, uh, many of the people that I interviewed, uh, as soon as they made the decision to not attend uh, their religious communities anymore, there was a level of ostracization from their families and their religious communities. And then and then other ramifications, some of them lost uh, investment capital from people who found out that they were, you know, they had left that religious community. Some of them actually just lost their jobs because their jobs were even connected with someone yep. in that, that network. The more difficult part of the question, I think, for me is the people that I interview come from 
various denominations, uh, Southern, hmm. Southern Baptists to missionary Baptists to uh, Assemblies of God, and some of them United Methodist, uh, as far as kind of a rural United Methodist. The denominations didn't help me think about this much at all, because I think particularly in the South, there's a uniformity in conservative Christianity. But, but the one thing I'll, I'll say about this is uh, these churches are very, very mainstream that they were part of. You know, they, they advertise in the local newspapers. They do public events. Some of them house local voting. The, the, the people within these communities are local judges, attorneys, doctors, physicians, nurses, ex-military and current military personnel. I mean, I, I don't want to give any indication that these are your backwood militia people. No, this is not you snake know. handlers or whatever yeah. in, in no, the no, Appalachians. No. Yeah. Most of these people would, would not identify as fundamentalist. The, the groups would not identify as fundamentalist. The, the people I interview now may point to them and call them fundamentalist. Most of them would just call themselves evangelical. And I, and I know many evangelicals may be cringing that, yeah, it, these people kind of use this term, although sure. evangelical is such a broad terminology. That's why that's why I didn't use uh, denominations. That's why I felt like evangelical fundamentalists didn't quite get to what I was studying, but that right. this was simply something I, I called culture war Christianity. Yeah, it's it's almost like that if you if you were to stick with the denomination but then you were to go outside of the Bible belt, you just wouldn't find this. The same denominational group, exact same doctrinal statement, yada yada yada, but it's not that. It, it isn't the particular Beliefs. It's just like the kind of thing I didn't see in California. There just isn't any, or it's, or maybe that's why I said these real true believers, truest of the true, because maybe I did kind of see it in very small pockets only in California, as opposed to there's a ramp. It's not that hard to end up here if you're in Kentucky. Yeah, I think that's right. I th- these groups don't. These groups don't exist in the margins. They they exist in the center. That's interesting. Another thing it's making me think about is plausibility structures. And I wonder how much you've thought about that. You know, uh, just the, the the basics that I understand is that a belief will seem more reasonable the more people around you seem to share the belief with complete disregard for whether or not that belief is true. Like all things being equal, the more that your community believes something, the more likely you are to believe it. What role do you think that plays in, in, in this situation? The one uh, plausibility structure as far as scholar that I'm really, really – familiar with is Peter Berger and his idea of what he calls the sacred canopy. And for him, the sacred canopy provides kind of a legitimating force to protect one against kind of external forces that may impede on one's life as as they have it at the moment. And, and this comes with what he, I think he uses the phrase something to the effect of, it comes with a particular kind of matter of factness, uh, which I, I think gets to it. And, and I think that's exactly right. I think if we can think of the communities themselves as providing kind of a sacred canopy, that plausibility structure, what I would say is those those are kind of the smaller canopies under this larger culture war canopy. And there's all kinds of competitions going on uh, between the canopies, the, the, these different plausibility structures themselves internally and externally. But, but I think maybe more to the point. Um, I, I think what these communities do is provide the level of legitimation that the individual needs, the family unit needs that, yeah. yes, we're on the right track. What we're doing is correct. And there's all kinds of terms we could throw in if we want to go in that direction of 
you know, the plausibility structure of white supremacy, the plausibility structure of patriarchy, heteronormativity. I think all of those things come into what we're discussing and how far down those roads we want to travel. Uh, maybe that's a totally different podcast, but I, but I think all those things are encapsulated within what we're discussing. I think that is a different podcast, but that's interesting to make those connections. Is there anything you'd like to say before we move on more about the intentions of the parents, of the pastors, the the volunteers, the Sunday school teachers in these groups? Like, I imagine they're mostly not sinister. It's more that they're kind of caught up in a, a big movement that they don't have the tools or the lens to see? Or how, how do you think of the intentionality of the actors in, in this situation? There's probably a fine line between sincere and sinister. Hmm. And, and I don't know exactly kind of what the judging measures are for that. And to take it just a slightly different direction, I, I think one of the things we're guilty of is not taking this seriously enough. Who's, and, who's and, we? Well, I think, I think scholarship uh, doesn't, take it seriously enough. And I, and I think people on the other side of the culture war, and maybe even people who just kind of are agnostic to the culture war altogether, I think when they look at what we might call the religious right or culture war Christianity, what I'm calling it, there's really an, an arrogant attitude towards it that these are just illiterate people. They've been backwards ever since slavery. These are, these are pre-modernist and one of the things I've, I, I've honestly tried to do is to come alongside of my consultants, but, but also, you know, and to try to take the other side very, very seriously with their arguments and what they're afraid of, their, their paranoia, all of those things. Like, I, like I want to sit down and, and sincerely try to understand where they're coming from. And I'm not sure in the culture war game, that's how it's played. You know, it's, uh, it's those people are asinine. You can't talk to them. You can't, you can't change their minds. And, I'm not sure that attitude gets us much anywhere. So I want to move to what happens after a person has been weaponized, you know, in terms of you're, you're, you're talking to them after they've kind of gotten out of it in some way. But is there anything else that you'd like to say about the culture war mentality or the weaponization itself of the of the child or the teenager before we move on to, like, what has come later in these people's lives? I think the one thing I'd say maybe to, to bridge into thinking about uh, where people end up now is that this is so exceptionally formative to who these people are still to this day. They can't absolutely leave the culture war uh, if they want to have any type of relationship typically with their family at all. And so although one may start going through processes of de-weaponization, uh, whether that's individually or in a community – it's kind of hitting them all the time. So even though we may talk about de-weaponization, they still live in the context where all of this is happening all around them. Yeah, if we could keep using the term I said, this this spiritual humidity or this culture war humidity, yeah, yeah. it's like, and especially in the South, it's an apt metaphor because the humidity just is just all around you. When you're outside, you just feel it at every moment. Uh, and, and so even if you're like, I'm not for that, I don't like humidity. You still have to walk outside in the humidity, right? right? Yeah, yeah. It's not yeah, going anywhere. Yeah, you still anywhere. sweat. Yeah, you still sweat. Uh, you still have to work in it. You yeah. still have to. Pl- you have to still play in it. You still have to raise your kids in it. Right. Exactly. Uh, so, so it's all around you, uh, and I, and I think that's part of what gets lost in the conversation sometimes. Is you know when when I talk about this, people are like, "Oh my gosh, these people are freeing themselves." Well, maybe, but in every single aspect of their life, they're engaging with this still. Yeah, that is fascinating. You were looking for people who went on a particular trajectory 
after their weaponization. You wanted to find people who had consciously left. But before we get to those people, what are some of the other trajectories that people might take who are raised in the same milieu? Yeah, so initially my project, I was focused on individuals. My initial project really wasn't interested in religious communities. One of the things I outline in the research is uh, trying to give some of the, the more common trajectories. One is that when they leave, they're, in their understanding, there is no religious alternative for them. Uh, the understanding is is that all churches are like this in the area, wherever that is. And you have to understand some of these are really, really rural areas right. where th- there's no knowledge of anything called progressive Christianity. The, the assumption is that mainline churches are really, really foreign with all their ups and downs and colors and candles and everything else. Right. And, you know, that just doesn't make sense. And so, you know, there's there's some people who uh, who just immediately – um, a lot of times actually literally sit down with their parents and say, you know, I'm uh, I'm not going back to that religious community. I'm out. I don't know where I'm at religiously, spiritually. I, I don't know where I'm at, but I know I can't be part of that anymore. And and so there's this this kind of this liminal stage. Uh, many of them, that liminal stage can lead to kind of a religious nun, uh, the N-O-N-E-S, you know, no religious community, but maybe you maintain some things, maybe you don't. Or uh, uh, some of them actually then found through podcasts and other things, other resources, kind of a progressive Christianity that makes sense to them. Uh, others in their trajectory actually knew of a progressive Christian community that looked a lot like what they're familiar with as far as form. And so it was easier transition from them from that into that community. And then from that, so that point A to point B, you actually see some people that that progressive Christianity is simply a liminal space for them to exit religion altogether. Uh, And then for others, uh, and this was more the case, that religious community becomes exceptionally important for them. And and it becomes a very, very vital space for them uh, to kind of reconstitute their self and who they are. And so it, it greatly varies uh, the people for the research, though, that, that I ended up doing, I focused more on the people who stayed, who, who said, I, w- I want to stay within Christianity. I think there's something redeemable here within the tradition, and there's resources here that, that not only help me, but are beneficial for society and, and grander things. There's also got to be people who didn't exit at all, but maybe just continue to play the cultural game, right? I mean, there's certainly... I know that the Evangelical Church and the Southern Baptist Convention, for instance, is losing members. Their membership is going down. Some of these churches are bleeding, but some of them are growing. And, you know, so there's obviously still people involved. Here's my question. If they were really weaponized, like the the people who had like the dad with the, the science program, at that point, are they either fully in or they have to leave? And is it is it simply if the less of this culture war weaponization that goes on, the easier it is for them to sort of stick around in the general culture without ruffling their own feathers or anyone else's feathers. Like, do you see a relationship there? There were people who who told me that they had so many intellectual doubts about the religious community that they were a part of, that some of it just didn't make sense. But the social pressures themselves were too much, and they felt like they couldn't leave their religious community at the time. Many of those people had really some sort of traumatic experience that really pushed them out. 
for instance, there was um, a, a gentleman that I spoke with uh, in Tennessee, and he, you know, was saying, "Man, I just had all these questions, but man, my wife was part of this thing. Our kids were in it." He said to the to the effect of, "I just couldn't come out religiously to my wife." Uh, and then her mom and dad were part of this religious yeah. community. He said for years, he, he kind of just played the game. You know, like he went in, he went through the motions. He, you know, someone asked him to lead in a prayer. He led the prayer in the form that it should take, that, that everybody would be like, yes, he's still in. But then one of the young family members was diagnosed with cancer, with this really, really aggressive cancer, and and died very, very quickly and, and this was like a Baptist community. And one of the things he, the whole family was really, really kind of shocked by was that, that people were, were saying things to the effect of, gosh, if he had had more faith, he probably would have lived longer. Yeah. And, and so when it became very, very personal and, it, and, it, and the theology obviously didn't, didn't align anymore with what they were thinking, it, it was in that tra- kind of traumatic space that he was able to go to his wife and say, like, man, I, I'm just questioning everything. And his, to his surprise, she actually said, like, me too. Where can we find that space? Other instances where, honestly, marriages break down because of this. It strikes me that this particular population that you're interested in, those who decided to stay within Christianity in some way and not leave altogether, that requires a lot of courage. Is, is that how you experience it in, in these interviews with people? Yeah, I think that's right. And I think one of the benefits of actually being able to almost to immediately find another religious community, uh, the strength in numbers, right, to just simply sure. stay. And I, and I think for them, to, well, two things, that I, that I think that religious community was the same way that the plausibility structure of the, the sacred canopy of the other community was sure. legitimating what they were doing. These religious communities were legitimating that their their own trajectories of, of leaving and, and, and kind of questioning. If you listen to this show, you should know by now that I run a Patreon campaign. It's a way for you to support the work financially if you want to. It starts at five bucks a month. It includes two bonus episodes every month. And so I am here to introduce the first of those episodes for the month of April. And this is a conversation I had with a group of four individuals who meet together. I think sometimes there's more people there, but four of them were able to get on the mic with me. They meet together down in San Diego, California, and they discuss, amongst other things, you have permission episodes. And when I found that they did that, I was like, that's really interesting. I'd be interested to know how you guys started doing that, what kind of conversations you've had. I imagine you might have some questions for me that could be clarifying, could be a fun conversation. So we had that conversation. And this episode ends up, I think maybe just because of the situation of the four of them kind of around a computer and a mic and then me with my own mic, I ended up talking quite a bit So you might think that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, If you kind of want more of a window into how I'm thinking about a lot of these questions, this would be a good episode to listen to. If you're not that interested in what I think and mostly just care about the expert guests that I bring on, which is a very defensible position to be in, then you might not like this one as much. Anyway, here is a clip from that conversation. I'm almost through, but I reread the Bible with with this one specific question in mind of, 
is God relating in the context of time? Meaning, is is I was looking for open relationship or uh, open theology in Scripture, and the most extreme example I look at is Jesus praying before the crucifixion. I think his prayer is genuine. I think Jesus truly intended to interact in submission to the Father, but he was genuinely looking for another way. And ultimately, he submitted, and thank you, God, for that. But hey. I, he wasn't just going through the motions. I, there, there has to be more that was happening. And the Bible's full of examples. You know, uh, praying for uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. And, you know, is it, was God just going through the motions because God knew, well, there's less, there's less than 10, so I'm, I'm safe, you know, hedging my bet, you know, 50, 45, 40, 30. Was that all just a game? I think God genuinely interacts and he considers his people. God invited Moses into secrets. That has that, to have meaning. That's relational. I, I, it, it's almost as if, and I'm stretching a bit here, but I, I think God actually wants our perspective from time to time. He interacted with Moses that way. Well, Rob, now you are coming beautifully close to process theology as i as i understand it and uh here's here's how i think of it and i hope that i'm right but basically the idea is that on a process view um our actions matter god what what god basically is always doing the 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 event the process of what god is doing god is in every instance he's everywhere and god is constantly basically presenting new routes, new options in every instant. And so on a classical view of Moses talking to God or or whatever, I mean, obviously, let, let's take Gethsemane because I think the further back you go in time in the, in the Bible, the, the more likely, frankly, it becomes that we're, we're dealing more with myth than historical account just because it's written a lot later and um, it's some of them are even written kind of like myth. You know, Adam's Adam in Hebrew is human. You know, there, there's elements to – but Jesus in the garden. So we're talking this is – they this is written as an, an event that occurred in, in time and space with a, with a person that really existed. And so what a process view of, of Christ in the garden would say is like God is – comprehending everything that is existing at once. And God includes Jesus of Nazareth is Jesus of Nazareth's prayer. As Jesus prays, may this cup pass that changes uh, the structure of all that is. And God then in the moment responds and presents things. And so this is a way of thinking why our input might matter to God. Uh, It's, it's that, on the process view, the future is like not just open because humans have choices, but it's open because God might present ways that God wouldn't have presented earlier based on what now exists. And if humans have real will, that means we can bring things into being that are not predetermined. And so if God is reacting to all totality of the universe, then God's reaction includes the thing I just chose or prayed or did. And so in that sense, it's not that we are changing God's mind like a 180, but like 
<laughs> to quote the the Big Lebowski, new shit has come to light. <laughs> Nice. And and it really has. Like there's a genuine addition of ourselves into our corner of God's story. And so then that might change God's we, God might give us and allure us to an option that was not there before we did this. And if you think about your own life, that's kind of what it looks like, right? In the way that we actually change. If that sounded interesting to you, you should become a patron. It starts at five bucks a month. You get two bonus episodes every month. You get access to the You Have Permission Facebook group. And sometimes you help me write the questions for my guests. Patreon.com slash Dan Koch or youhavepermissionpod.com and click become a patron. Back to my conversation with Terry. Can we actually talk a little bit more about plausibility structures here? Because it keeps coming up and it's the kind of thing you really can't get away from at all i can't get away from it like so nowadays i am partly surrounded by a bunch of theologians and theologically minded people who take science really seriously and who find kind of like a process theology view of the world you know reasonable and and this group is interested in sort of the way that certain physicists talk, but not the way that other physicists talk. When I was a kid, it was evangelical purity culture, and now it's this. And and it's like there's no way around it. I mean, it's true for atheists. It's true for anybody. Plausibility structures affect just the human psyche in general. Do, should we do something about that? Should we control for it? Like if you're in a cult, it'd be really good for you to recognize that the plausibility structures are really screwing things up. But if you're, I don't know, a member of the National Academy of the Sciences and everyone's doing really good work, then the plausibility structures are probably good because they keep you doing good. You know, like I, it's is it benign? Is it you know, mm. I don't know. Yeah, uh, that's a, that's a great question. For me, the, the question, honestly, would, would be, is it necessary as humans? Is, is there something about our makeup? Is there something about how we live life that that we have to have? Uh, these plausibility stretches. It's interesting what scholarship has done with this idea. So when Berger proposed the idea of the sacred canopy, Christian Smith later came around. He's a prominent um, sociologist. Yeah. yeah. At, at, at Notre, Notre Dame. Dame. Yeah. yeah. And he said in one of his books, particularly about American evangelicalism, is that what has happened is because of individualism, kind of an individualist ethos in America, uh, individually, we've we've all just reached up and and grab that canopy and kind of just taking whatever shreds of it made sense to us and made our own kind of sacred umbrellas. Yeah, so ev- every single American is taking a part of the plausibility structure of the sacred canopy of individualism. And then, oh, I think that I'm an enlightened atheist. And so you dumb individualist fundamentalists, but like, what if you lived in China and you weren't yeah. an individualist? Like, it- it's... This is why it's inescapable. I think it is inescapable. I can't imagine a brain structure of a person that does not care what percentage of people around them agree with them on on some particular thing, uh, seen or unseen, as in the case of individualism, which is we don't recognize that we're all taking part in that plausibility structure as Americans. Yeah, so I, I think you're right, and I, and I think this actually somewhat brings us back to the idea of a culture war at least a, a polarized culture, culture where there's like side A and side B right. is that 
many scholars, and including all the way back to, back to say Max Weber, uh, argued that that really in our modern world, and by modern world, the Western world, that the things we were doing was really leading us to disenchantment, that uh, really dissatisfaction with life as we know it. And so the whole sacred umbrella thing, I, I'm not sure that it's enough uh, for us. And so uh, as humans, just just to live life in a meaningful kind of way that we want to perpetuate our species. And so I, I think culture war steps in at an opportune time and says, you know, as Americans, we're fighting for something internally. Yeah. And where this tends to go away a little bit is when we can identify an external competitive sacred canopy, right? When we yep. can point at, at communism uh, or those people over there and, and as a nation – we add in under God and our Pledge of Allegiance uh, just to set ourselves apart from the Soviet Union and that, that Cold War uh, kind of mode. Uh, and then once that collapses, we have to have something else fill that void for us. And I don't know if this is a human phenomenon or an American phenomenon, but I think the culture war fills that gap. And, and we haven't, because of the way that terrorism works today, it's harder for us to point at a nation state and feel that external competitive sacred canopy plausibility structure right. in, the, in the same way that we've done in the past, right? Germany or something. We can't just say, yeah. like, no one's really mad at Afghanistan. Like, I don't have any feelings about the Afghani government or, or people, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think it's, you know, symbolically it's used as a trope, but I, I think somewhere we're split on this. But it's, it's like that war on terror isn't doing the work we need it to do to, to be able to Uh, come together as Americans. It's not unifying us with our soldiers the way that Korea and World War II and and even for at least half of America the way that Vietnam did, but, you know, increasingly less and less as we go on. I'm going to put this article in the show notes, but it it puts me in mind of a, a recent Andrew Sullivan piece where he talks about America's new religions. And he's just like, you know, he he's like a gay Catholic He's kind of a wild card guy himself. I don't know if you read him or like him, but he's like, you You want to look at the people who claim to not be religious. Like, look at all this language that they use. Like, look at the way that Neil deGrasse Tyson talks about the transcendence of the cosmos and understanding of the cosmos, all the while removing God and, and theological language. But like, he's like, it, people can't get away from this. We We just go to a different kind of religion, or most of us do, or something like that. And I just find that, like, yeah, that that seems true to me. I, I think that's right. I think what we're seeing now, uh, I actually heard Rob Bell call it big magic one time, hmm. uh, using, I think, Elizabeth Gilbert's uh, language. Right. But, uh, but you know, doing this very generic thing that there was, there was this very magical, mystical world that humans embraced and then enters enlightenment and kind of rationalization, empirical method. But that doesn't lead to any type of kind of human fulfillment. So now what we're seeing is uh, an actual mixture of those two things. And so we're kind of seeing, I keep wanting to call it social scientific spirituality, that this is the Brene Brown and Jordan, Jordan Peterson. Peterson. Yeah, yeah he, he walks that line of, look, we're talking data, but we're also talking about meaning making. Yeah, meaning and transcendence, yeah. Yeah, and so I, I think it's it's a blending of the two is, is what we're we're working towards, I think, as a society a little bit. So then I guess to tie this back in with your work, the population you're most interested in are people who have had to leave these traumatic environments where they were weaponized. 
but they do still want transcendence and they believe that there is some transcendence or possible transcendence at least if it can be removed from all the bullshit within Christianity. That's interesting because that's basically the people I'm most interested in talking to and, and, and the people who I'm most interested in listening to the show. Obviously, I'm happy for anybody to listen. But that is really, for me also, the interesting demographic. What else is it about that group that you think is so appealing to you or so interesting to you? One of the people that I interviewed who is, I, I think is just absolutely brilliant. When I, when I asked her, you know, I said something to the effect of, you know, you grew up in this thing and, and you, you question it to death, but you still want to stay in it. Uh, you, you still want to claim the label Christian. There's so many religious alternatives, spiritual alternatives, uh, non-religious alternatives. Like, you know, you could just be, say, a Braves fan. Uh, you know, there's there's other ways that you could kind of fill that void. And and her response, you know, I just said, well, why, you know, why? Just can, is there any way to articulate like why you stay within something you call progressive Christianity? And I, and I really liked what she said. She said something to the effect of, if I leave Christianity at that moment, I become untethered. And, and I said, well, what do you mean by that? She's like, if I leave that for me, I no longer have a language. I no longer have symbols. I no longer have a culture. At that point, am I no longer Southern? At that point, am I no longer American? I mean, for her, like that was like the, the hinge point of every other identity she had as a, in, in herself. And so it was the it was being tethered to her that was important. And so for her to remain in it in a more kind of creative, a more progressive, a, a freer yeah. kind of way, that's where she really wanted to be and to operate. You know, that's interesting. I could imagine somebody hearing that and going, well, that's kind of like a weakness or that's an unfortunate set of circumstances. But I've thought about this in regard to other religions myself. And uh, I recently went to this Tibetan Buddhist prayer service uh, near my house as well, and I was just in there, and I, I thought it was going to be like a bunch of silent meditation, but it wasn't. It was like a ton of liturgy and like praying to these gods I don't believe in and, and you know, different – kind of different – I'm not hating on them. The the, the people were really kind, uh, but it was really weird, um, you know, frankly, to, to my whatever Christian sensibilities. And I was like, okay, I mean, I could try, if I was really upset with Christianity, I could try to become a Buddhist. I could I could sort of try to have some other kind of yoga, spirituality light. But like, I don't know that, I don't know that I really could ever get away from my spiritual categories given to me by Christianity. And I don't know that I would want to, or that there would even be much value in that. At what point... Am I just running from one abuser to the next? Or at what point am I trying to like move cities and change my clothes when I go to college to be a new, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know how much we can change those things that are, that are so given and ingrained. And maybe what, what some of the people you're interviewing are realizing whether or not they'd put it this way is like, look, Judeo Christianity gave us science and human rights and fucking hospitals. Like there's obviously plenty here that's good and we're just in this weird version of it in this particular culture. But like what's the alternative is something not that doesn't resonate with their meaning center, their their sort of deepest intuitions. And so I really resonate with that. And 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 just 
I think of it in terms of other, other faith traditions as well. One of the things that the data indicate is, so I interviewed approximately like 60 people, 10, 10 of uh, those 60 people uh, at, made a decision to leave Christianity altogether. And, and they mm-hmm. were kind of the, the control group so that I could understand a kind of a different perspective yeah, outside yeah. of it. Cool. But talking with those people who, who had made the decision to kind of leave uh, Christianity, one of the things that they recognized and, and actually was kind of was 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 obvious to me there was a very hard period in their life that was that was exceptionally psychologically unhealthy for them that that, that they did kind of float uh, for a while not having any me- meaning not knowing who they were and really wrestling for for many of them for over a decade you know with uh, some of them with suicidal thoughts some of them with a, a lot of notions of no self value one guy actually told me he actually went from the the kind of the culture war Christianity to a progressive Christianity, and then for him, kind of none of it made sense, and 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 kind of worked his way out. And uh, in the interview, he he actually just paused and and kind of real slowly said, you know, when when I was in uh, the mega church I was in, they used to always tell me, you know, you're you're going to avoid that you're, you're headed. With these questions you're asking, you're, you're headed to nothingness. Yeah. And, and, and he actually told me, he said, you know, he said, I hate to admit, he said, but they're right. I mean, that's where I've ended up. And so for him trying to find other resources, uh, he's geographically moved. So now there's space between him and his, right, his family, his heritage, his roots. Yeah. Uh, and so and so he's having to do, put in a lot of hard work on himself to, you know, to kind of reconstitute himself. And so I, I think, you know, staying with in it at a, at a at least a certain level does provide a, a particular type of solace and uh, meaning making that people who have a hard break with it don't quite have. Yeah, it makes me think there's a couple things that are worth acknowledging about the kind of slippery slope argument that conservatives will make when people start questioning. I always remind people that the slippery slope is literally one of the logical fallacies. So it's yeah. not a good argument. That doesn't right. mean that it doesn't represent a common pattern that, that yeah. people come into. Uh, it is true that a lot of people who start questioning end up leaving the faith altogether. It's also plausibly true that the faith is false and that's why they do it. And that's why we can't use a slippery slope argument to argue for it. Of course, on this show, I'm trying to highlight why myself gets highlighted in the process, but a bunch of other people too who who have asked those questions and have not slipped all the way off the ledge and, and have found right. a different kind of Christianity like, like so many of the people that you've interviewed – but of course we got to say that like, hey, especially if you've been traumatized, like going to avoid might be the best thing for you either forever or for a season or, you know, whatever, like get healthy. It's like asking women to stay with their abusive husbands to av- avoid being divorced. Like, mm-hmm. do we really want to do that? Like get out of the abuse, <laughs> get yeah. some space. Like, do we really think that God would want you to stick around your abusers, whether they meant to abuse you or not? Is that going to produce real faith? Like, no, it's of course it isn't. So, yeah. I mean, for anybody who's listening, there's there's certain levels of trauma that that I think have to be recognized, and any psychologist and counselor will will tell you that that in certain types of trauma. To, to break off from that social network, that religious community is the help. It's going to be hard. I'm right. I think any counselor would 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 acknowledge that. But but a clean break at certain times is maybe the healthiest decision at that moment. Speaking of which, do you have any plans to ever kind of team up with a psychologist or 
a trauma trauma counseling team or something because you know your job as a religion scholar is just to describe you're you're not supposed to be treating and you said you're not treating them but doesn't this make you want to like help devise a curriculum or 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 a program that could treat some of this trauma well, let me say this. I don't necessarily know many psychologists or counselors uh, who are doing this type of work. I think it's much needed, uh, particularly in the Bible Belt. Like one of the things I've, I've often said is that there probably needs to be some sort of refuge church, a religious community that, that uses the Christian language that's very familiar with evangelicals for people who want to either work their way out or work towards a different type of religiosity with with the expressed intentions that if you're here, say, longer three to five years, we need to have another conversation. Yeah, uh, interesting. That, it, yeah. that I think there needs to be some sort of therapeutic church system created, whether that is towards a progressive Christianity or helps them yeah. move towards uh, kind of an individual religiosity, a spiritualism. But I think, you know, in, in Nashville, I know for a fact there's Christians Anonymous where people— uh, who, in their terms, were addicted to the faith and then brought up in it, had to leave, and they need kind of that uh, that social group where they can talk about it, you know. And so, yeah. I, I don't know, but I, but I think you could use the the songs, the sermons, the commitments in a particular way to get people in a healthier fashion, and maybe part of it is even introducing them to evolutionary biology and some of the things they might have missed out on. That sounds great. Hey, welcome. If you're still here in three or four years, we're, we're doing something wrong. Bring in ministers from all kinds of different denominations. Give people a sort of a flavor. I mean, that's what this podcast is in some sense. It is kind of like you could listen to this podcast forever, I would hope, because it's always going to be interesting. But one of the things I'm trying to do is bring these different flavors in, denominations, ways of thinking so that people can sort of understand the wider world especially within Christianity, it empirically exists. It is there just because your Sunday school teacher told you that those other Christians weren't Christians doesn't mean that they were right about that. You know, right. They certainly wouldn't agree with you. <laughs> Robert Putnam talks about this, a, a sociologist uh, who wrote like Bowling Alone in American Grace. Yeah. But he talks about that uh, so many religious communities end up kind of being um, the volunteer mobilization place. So it's the space, but it also works to put you in other spaces outside of that, except in the sense of what he calls evangelicalism and fundamentalism. It's all kind of internal. So when you volunteer, you're volunteering in the church with another evangelical kind of volunteer organization or mission society or whatever. And so, you know, that, that refuge church, I think then becomes exactly what you're saying. Like it's, it's almost a civic space as well. Yeah. Uh, that that many of the people who grew up in, in cultural Christianity and, and these types of rigid uh, compulsory Christianity didn't quite experience. And so uh, it, it helps build a social network for volunteerism, but then also a social network for jobs. I mean, that's what many of the religious communities already do anyways. And so you think how holistically this thing would have to be. Uh, it sounds daunting in so many ways, but but I think it's needed in the, in the Bible Belt region. What findings of yours or stories that you heard in your interviews that we haven't heard yet were you the most surprised by? Two really quick stories that I, that I think probably exemplify many of the things that I heard throughout. One of them was a young lady made the decision to leave her church 
and kind of enters into the the void and has suicidal tendencies. And one night, really wrestling with this, is on the verge of suicide and decides that uh, she's she's going to call her family. I think she calls her sister and kind of says something to the effect of, I miss you all. I'm dying here. I'm going to fucking blow my brains out. And her sister's response is something to the effect of, we don't use language like that. Uh, no. When you decide you can talk to me in an appropriate way, I'll speak with you. No. Uh, which I think really gets to the fissures and the fractures that happens once people leave these. Like, Oh, my God. I think that story kind of really, really gets to it that a sister would say this to a sister, right? Like biologically connected. Uh, the, the young lady obviously did commit suicide, yeah. has uh, found counseling help, completely divorced from her – at this point, completely divorced. You know, the counselor actually said, I think you need to cut all ties, at least for a while. This isn't permanent. But, yeah. but I think that speaks to this, right? In, in some ways, it, when those fissures happen, it is you left the religious community. But if we take the culture war seriously, it's that you went AWOL. Hmm. Right. Yeah, keeping with the war imagery. Yes, you're now fighting for the other. You defected. Yeah, you're a, you're a traitor. It's treason. Yeah. You, treason. You were brought up correctly, and and I think that is scary for so many people uh, on the right side of the the religious right side of the culture war because I think it affirms so many of their paranoias. If those people who were yeah. trained from such an early age into this and know what's right from their perspective can defect and now create this kind of treasonous other side and play for the other team, then, then I think it's horrifying. Uh, and so, you know, a sister is able to tell her biological sister that, uh, you know, like we can't talk until you kind of speak my language. Before uh, you give me the other story that a light bulb just went off for me. This is maybe the best way I've heard or, or discovered to think about this. I've mentioned it before that, there are times in my life where I noticed that I was more afraid of becoming a progressive or liberal Christian than I was afraid of losing my faith. And that seems silly, right? Like, because at least if I'm a progressive Christian, there's a chance that I'm still saved in the old logic. But maybe this is what it is. It's a difference between being an enemy combatant and being a spy, you know, or like a like a traitor, like a gorilla working from the inside to undermine our side wolf in sheep's clothing kind of a thing that's worse than just being a wolf being born a wolf you know or whatever yeah 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 i i think and again that's that's really what i mean when we need to take the culture war seriously right that the mentality is that the lines are very clear for many people and to defect is to join the other side whether you're joining the other side or not right the way that it's imagined is You've abandoned every value, ethos, heritage, and you decided the other side is what you want to give your energy towards. Again, I, I didn't hear many stories that, it, that involved the suicidal tendencies in that way, but the, the fracturing and the, the, the fissures of the families were everywhere uh, and is a real struggle for the, the consultants of my project. Yeah. You had another uh, story you were going to tell. Yeah, so so one of the, the other stories I think that really led me in thinking about the trauma, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm, in my work, I'm really careful about this, saying that I'm not necessarily diagnosing the trauma, yeah. but I'm simply giving a voice to the, the, the trauma in the way that people describe their, their narratives. And one of the stories uh, was, was relayed to me about this couple 
he was on staff at his mega church. Uh, they're married. He's on staff. He's helping out with the youth or children or something. And, and they, they, they actually read, it's actually, um, one of the most influential things on them is actually Shane Claiborne's The Irresistible Revolution. They read that and it totally shakes their Christian ground that they're on. And they decide that, you know, they want to go like feed the homeless. And so they, they, they head to a more urban place than they are and they, they feed the homeless and it really starts to reformulate uh, their their Christianity and their values, and they start to talk about this a little bit within their church community. The leadership of the church really resists this, and and there's a really bad kind of breakup uh, between all of this. I mean, he's renting one of the houses of one of the ministers, and then once he's let go from the church, the minister says, "Also, you need to leave the house." Slowly but surely, he makes a decision. He he tries kind of emerging Christianity at the time. And that fits him for a while, but then uh, doesn't doesn't quite suit him. Uh, and so he ends up kind of working his way out of uh, going to church or any religious community at all. Ends up moving. He's actually moving on the West Coast in the Pacific Northwest. And it was to 10 years later that his, his in-laws, uh, they have a very bad relationship, uh, his in-laws and him. And um, they, they say, hey, we're headed out for uh, Christmas holidays. And we would just love it if you all just went to church with us, and uh, we'll kind of pick this neutral church that we can all go to. But since it's Christmas, we would just like for you to do this. And, and he thinks, like, you know, I can make that concession. For him in his mind, it's like, it's about time. Like, I, I can do this. I can go back now. And he recognizes that they're they're trying in good faith to, do, yes. to find a yep. compromise. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And so— the way he tells us stories, he goes into this religious gathering, and it's it, it's West Coast evangelical, though. But you know, so it's it's different. There's a kind of a different flavor to it, as, as you've said. And he says though that as soon as they start with the first song, he can't quite explain it, but like he starts sweating and shaking, um, and his hands start trembling, and he has all of this stuff kind of coming back to him. And the, the only thing he can do is to just stand up and go outside. And I think he has to smoke a cigarette or something. Um, to, and, and he decides, like, I'm going to stand out in the rain and the cold. He didn't have the keys to the car. And he just stood outside the entire thing. And one, for him, he actually, right after that, started seeking counseling for really kind of something akin to, say, post-traumatic religious syndrome or something. And then the second thing is... His family, his in-laws interpreted that as he had set it all up to kind of mock it in the first place, that he was going to do this and then he was going to kind of create a scene and use this to somehow say he has these negative – and somehow he's making it all up. They're, so they're just, acting out of some kind of insecurity. Yeah. Yeah. In all of his good attempts, it ends up kind of even further damaging uh, his relationships there. Oh, man. Um, but yeah, so like, you know, those stories really, and those were early in the in the the interview process. And so they really started, man, they just set me on this track of like, gosh, there's something really, really intense going on here. And I need to try to hear more of this. And so I, it, what I ended up doing was actually going to uh, the Wild Goose Festival. And, yeah, which is like uh, a progressive Christian festival on the East Coast every year. Yeah, every July uh, in the Appalachian Mountains and really found a whole lot of people that I ended up falling back to these religious communities in North Carolina and Tennessee and Kentucky and met uh, really all kinds of people who share this trajectory. And, and they're in this weird spot now, though, where they've created these religious communities and people are drawn to them now who don't quite share the same trajectory. Interesting. And so now you have this two segment part of it who doesn't get what they're talking about sometimes. 
um, but who sincerely really wants to jump on this progressive Christianity thing they're doing. Right, because they, so don't, they don't have the jargon and the vocabulary yes. from their own upbringing. Right. Yeah, and they, they don't have the baggage, right? They don't right. have the baggage as well. Yeah. Yeah, so that's got me thinking in totally different directions now, too, of the future of these communities. Wow, yeah. Well, as we sort of move toward a close here, what should people not do with this information? Like, one idea I have is, like, immediately go yell at their parents for weaponizing them or something like that. Like, what's an overreaction? I'm going to ask you about someone who identifies like, oh, my gosh, I have some of this trauma. Le- leaving that aside, just just listeners who find this interesting and who don't have sort of serious trauma related to it. Well, so for the people who don't quite understand this and, you know, didn't grow up in, in this milieu and don't quite understand it. Yeah. The, the, the one thing that I would suggest is uh, there's, there's actually people on the West Coast who moved uh, to get away from from all of this. And so there are people you can chat with to kind of further understand it. And, and I think the recognition that there's a different type of Christianity that they inherited, I, I think, is really, really important and vital for the for religious communities. Uh, for for those who grew up in this, who are, who are listening, who are just, you know, kind of nodding their head the whole time, yeah. saying like, yeah, I, I get that. I understand that. The thing that, that I would suggest, and, and this, I think, takes some creativity, is really, really consider your next moves in the sense that so much of what you will do will be interpreted through a culture war lens. Ah, oh, that's so good. Assume that people will view you as AWOL, defector, traitor. Because they're yes. going to, because they don't really have a choice. One of the things that one of the, the consultants said to me that I thought was really, really interesting, because uh, he's still in North Carolina, but he would make these comments to people. So he would, you know, he'd meet someone who said, I'm Christian, and I'm just giving you, I'm just tossing out an example. And they would say something super, super dehumanizing about uh, unauthorized immigrants, right? Yeah. And he said that he would take that moment to say something to the effect of, Man, I can't believe how far apart we are on this because I know you're such a sincere person and we hold all of these faith values together. And I just can't imagine how you could get there. Can we hold this and in a couple of weeks come together and talk about it? Yeah. And I, yeah, I thought, I thought that disarmed a lot of things. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's actually making concessions that there's a shared values there, which yeah. I think is really, really important. It, it de-arms that you're on the other side kind of thing. And then I think taking a couple of weeks to think about it takes some of the emotion out of it, where even, you know, whether you're on the right or the left, you you got some time to think through it. You know, and he said that when they did meet up, the first thing he did was hug them and say, I want you to know I love you so much. And then usually share personal stories about, say, an unauthorized immigrant that he's met who is such a beautiful person and really try to humanize the argument and the debate over and over and over again. Yeah. What about someone listening who's like, oh, man, this is me, and I think I might have some trauma here to work through. Uh, you know, is this a counseling thing? Are there organizations that deal specifically with this kind of trauma? What What are the resources there? I, I think this is a, a, a counseling thing. I think there's therapy that's needed. I don't know specific names or organizations that have um, that have identified this work as exactly what they're targeting. Now, I will say this: there are people who are targeting particular aspects of this. Help me with the name, Tina. She's a psychologist. Tina there. Sellers. Tina Sellers. Yeah, um, she's an upcoming uh, upcoming guest on the show. Yeah, who's wonderful, and I think her work is part of this. 
Yeah. Um, that that part of this is the that sex becomes part of the weaponization. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know that it's a very specific thing that's done. Yeah. Purity culture uh, with, is wrapped up. Yes. In this. Yeah. Sexuality, all of it, and I think her work is targeting a very specific aspect of what I'm talking about, and so. Uh, you should check out, you know, maybe you could put her website yep. and she has a, a great book out. Uh, you could put those in the notes as well. I will. Yeah. And, also, uh, so Dan Allender and the Seattle School here in, in Seattle, yeah. he does a lot of work around spiritual trauma and abuse. And I'll yeah. I'll put a link to, to some of that stuff as well in the notes. Oh, you, you know who else is um, just generally on uh, spiritual trauma is uh, Shelley Rambo, okay. uh, who's at uh, Boston University School of Theology. And she does a lot of work with uh, with religious trauma as well. Hopefully someone's listening and, and says, you know what, I'm I'm going into counseling and I didn't know what my target was. But right. this is this is my niche. Right. This is where I can really kind of set it's kind of anchor down and help some people. And I'm more than willing if, if someone wants to talk about this as far as as how to work towards some sort of training or manual or something or program that can, that at least in the initial ways to get people asking the right questions. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm available. Okay. Um, yeah. I'll also, those, those I'll put of. your, uh, ASU email in there as well. So you can email Terry. And then the last question is what about someone who's listening to this and doesn't recognize the trauma, but recognizes themselves as having been a part of the culture war environment and, and maybe in inadver- of course, inadvertently, uh, taking part in in weaponizing some of these younger people and continuing this system. Before I even like say what I'm about to say, let me say everybody make your own decisions uh, about this. Right. One of one of the beautiful aspects of Christianity is is the the idea of forgiveness. Man, I'm just seeing all the faces of the consultants of my project right now. Uh, how meaningful it would be to get a phone call or an email or some sort of communication with someone and just saying something to the effect of, um, I just want to apologize if I played a role in this at all. Um, and and if you can, yeah. And if you can identify, you know, if, if me doing this, this, and this, if it in any way was a part of this weaponization of you as a beautiful, beautiful human, I'm sorry. I think that is good for both people in the situation. Man, Terry, thank you so much for this conversation. I was riveted the whole time. I'm sure people have been really helped and and found it really interesting. I just, man, thank you so much. Yeah, uh, thanks for uh, talking about this. I, um, I appreciate the conversation. Man, what a conversation. What a topic. We've got a lot of stuff in the show notes here. Pray the Gay Away the sacred canopy america's new religions the andrew sullivan piece tina sellers allender center episode shelly rambo terry's email please let me know what you're thinking what do you want me to cover who do you want me to interview you have permission podcast at gmail.com and of course you can become a patron patreon.com slash dan coke or you have permission pod.com Click become a patron. And uh, finally, a big thanks to Scott Sanjemi for editing my conversation with Terry today. Thank you, Scott. We'll see you guys next week. <laughs>